Shift is sponsored by Hariba Automotive. As the transition toward electrified mobility gains speed, Hariba is doing more for less. More expertise, technology, and integration. Less emissions and impact on our world. Learn more at hariba.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host. Hi, Pete. Good to hear from you. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Joining us today is Ranuk Bose, the Chief Technology Officer of UK Startup Humanizing Autonomy. Leslie, I'm sorry you missed this interview. It's been uh, it's really interesting to hear a little bit about this uh, this very unusual company. Yeah, Humanizing Autonomy. So uh, it, it certainly is an intriguing name. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a preview about what they do? You know, I'd, I'd say that their premise is this. Uh, automation thus far has been a one-way street uh, in which the cars are making uh, decisions about what they see ahead and, and proceeding accordingly. And, and what's missing essentially is a bridge into uh, inferring what what humans and other road actors uh, like bicyclists might might actually be doing and and kind of predicting their behavior. Uh, so maybe teaching the um, the automated system some of the subtleties that we as human drivers might pick up on. I, I imagine that's what that is. I would say more human pedestrians and bicyclists, uh, not so much other cars, but but very much uh, kind of figuring out what the the behavior of human beings is and kind of infusing that into a system so it can make intelligent choices about how we might behave. You know, it's interesting because when you think about autonomy or just automation in general, when we are driving, a lot of what we do has to do with looking at the other driver, looking at their eyes, kind of figuring out what they're going to do. You kind of have an instinct about it. The more you drive, um, the, the sharper that instinct becomes. You're thinking, okay, this person's acting a little odd. Let me just stand back because something's going to happen. And I don't know if, if an automated system has that level of instinct. And so I imagine so as this is something that they want to help teach the uh, systems to do. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it, Leslie. I think that, um, you know, you kind of remember this is going back five years or so maybe, but there's a, a company called Drive AI that has since, uh, you know, I think been acquired by, by Apple, if I remember correctly. But you know, they had this system that kind of told the pedestrian what to do. Like it's now safe to walk, you know, don't walk, et cetera. I think they had like 70 something signs. That's probably the most egregious example of how, uh, you know, it's not necessarily up to the car to tell, to tell other road actors how to behave. To your point, it is this delicate dance of, you know, eye contact and, and inference and, and kind of nudging ahead accordingly. And, it's a dance. So I, I think that's uh, very much the nuance that, that humanizing autonomy brings to the automotive and, and tech industries. So this is, I'm sure, a very fascinating discussion. So I say, uh, without further ado, Pete, why don't we get right to your conversation? That sounds great, Leslie. Uh, why don't we go ahead and do just that? Uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Ranuk Bose. Chief Technology Officer of Humanizing Autonomy. Ron Nuck, welcome to the Shift Podcast. It's great to have you today. 
Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be here as well. Uh, where are you joining us from today? So I'm actually joining from Gran Canaria right now, but I'm flying back home to London today. Um, I had a bit of a break and then been working remotely from here because it's in the same time zone and why not? That sounds amazing. Uh, for those of us who have not been in the Canary Islands, which I would venture <laughs> to guess is most of us, what's, uh, what's it like there and, and how's your time been? Uh, it's been great. I was here for a friend's wedding uh, who's from here and I decided to extend my stay uh, mostly because the infrastructure here for internet and so on is actually better than in the UK. So uh, it's been very easy to work and uh, allowed me to try some new things out after work. So I went surfing with my friend here uh, most days after work, which has been really nice. Very nice. Well, we're, we're jealous here in the uh, Detroit area where it's <laughs> starting to get really cold and uh, and elsewhere. From Don't worry, I'm going back to London now for that, <laughs> for that sweet, sweet cold. <laughs> the, the weather's not altogether different, uh, I think, in Detroit and <laughs> London. Uh, it's, you know, cold and gray and, and changes a lot. Um, it changes a lot. In Detroit, it's a bit more extreme, maybe, but still. That's probably true. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, humanizing autonomy a little bit. Uh, big news within the last week or two, uh, you've raised a Series A. Uh, tell us about you know, the finances involved and who your investors are. Yeah, so uh, we're really proud to have raised that Series A. Um, uh, the investors are um, uh, coming from different geographies, uh, but the co-leads are Beacon, who are based in the UK, and uh, Nihon Unisys, who are based in Japan. Uh, what this really allows us to do is to really expand our our own practices. So in hiring, we're, uh, we're actually expanding into a more global team. Uh, so hiring across Asia, Europe, and the US, um, but also deploying our software in those geographies as well. So this comes at a really good time um, as we expand our reach in the automotive side and mobility, but also in new verticals, which I'm happy to talk about later. What's driving that business overall? So the main driver behind it is the demand. So we are a relatively early stage startup, so we didn't want to have uh, lots of people uh, distributed around the world. We wanted a core engineering team that has been based in London, the UK for the past four and a half years. Um, but what we're seeing is more and more of our customers are coming from Japan, from the US, from Germany and so on. And uh, especially given the time of uh, distributed working and remote working, it, it's kind of come at a time that seems very appropriate for us to be expanding our reach and our, our talent as well. You mentioned uh, automotive, which is kind of what I want to dive into first, but give us a quick overview. What are the o other verticals that, uh, that humanizing autonomy works in? Yeah, so, I mean, we very much began with the vision of creating a safer and more human-centric city. So this is why uh, automotive was the right place for us to start. But really, what we have in the city are also many other functions outside of the road. So we're looking at areas of uh, manufacturing, of construction, of logistics and warehousing, distribution centers. These are all areas where humans and machines are, are interacting constantly. And we see a big value there of using our technology, uh, which is modular, so it can be actually adapted to the cameras that already exist in these, um, in these verticals to make those places safer, more efficient, but also ultimately more pleasant for the people who work in those areas. So let me back up a second. And uh, your, your AI predicts the, 
the trajectory and behavior of, of human beings? Is that, uh, is that it in a nutshell? In a nutshell, yeah, but actually I would like to um, maybe slightly tweak that because it's, it's more about the behavior than the trajectory. The trajectory is one part of it, of course, and that's really important uh, to understand where is this person going. But that's almost a sub part of what we're really trying to do, which is trying to understand what are the intentions of this person in this very kind of domain-specific way. So if, for example, we're looking at a cyclist or a pedestrian, it's important, of course, to know uh, where they're going, and you can measure their velocity and their heading and so on to see, okay, they're likely to be going in this direction. But there are lots of subtle, nuanced body language uh, cues that actually uh, can also help us to understand um, what they might be doing next. So is this person who's really near the edge of the road um, actually about to cross the road? So we need to look at that relationship between the person the vehicle in this case and the infrastructure and and look at how that's that that whole system is modeled um so trajectory is definitely one part of it um but there are also lots of human characteristics like intention that uh, form the basis of the behavioral side of it give us some examples of that like what are, what are some of the uh, the cues that you'd like to uh to kind of key in on that that you can infer some intention from yeah so I guess it's useful maybe to think about, uh, let's choose one human characteristic. Um, let's say distraction. So distraction, you can't really see distraction. You infer distraction. As a human, when someone's distracted, I can see that uh, they're doing things that I infer that they're distracted. For example, if we're driving down a busy street in, in central London, say Soho is a very busy area where there's a lot of ambiguity between um, pedestrian and, and driving space, um, then you want to be looking at uh, some, some other human cues to understand how safe it is for you as a driver or as an autonomous vehicle to progress. So um, if someone's on their phone, if someone is talking to their mate next to them, if someone is not looking at the vehicle, these are all observable cues. So these are cues that we can see. And we combine them as humans into, okay, this person's distracted. He's not aware or she's not aware of us being there. So maybe we should slow down a bit. So essentially what we do is we build computer vision uh, models to extract the observable uh, things um, for each pedestrian or cyclist or factory worker or construction worker and so on. And then we build uh, and we combine those into another model that is the kind of higher level behavior. So what is this person's intention and that intention might break down into um, the context. So if it's a road context or if it's a factory context, you would have different goals or different intentions. Um, but also you would look at um, the kind of underlying human characteristics like distraction, like, um, like fatigue and so on. What's sort of the standard in the industry right now, like pre-humanizing autonomy? How is the autonomous technology industry doing at um, understanding those those yeah. intentions yeah i mean uh, we were really surprised in 2017 when we launched so the, uh, we launched in 2017 following a research project at imperial college london and we were really surprised that the main cues that that the industry was uh, were using were primarily uh, primarily physics-based cues so they're looking at trajectories and and to be frank that will account for most things that will account for 80 percent of things but there's that final 20% that's really difficult that is the kind of enabler to mass adoption. 
and that's where we fit in. So we, uh, we of course, look at the trajectory and the motion planning algorithms that have existed for decades, but we then sit on top of that to understand those little nuanced cues that help us to make the space safer or more efficient and more pleasant. So when I say efficient, it's things like from a human-driven vehicle, those are the false positives. So there are a number of systems where if they're just using physics-based systems, they will uh, have alerts again and again. Now, this is very, very annoying for drivers, and often what happens is they switch them off. There's a lack of trust between this uh, feature that's been designed for safety in mind and the actual end user. So what we've done is we've, uh, we've created a methodology that reduces this false positive amount a lot so that the drivers actually trust. And in the autonomous vehicle case, when without this kind of granular information about the pedestrians and other VRUs in this way, sorry, vulnerable road users, um, uh, the autonomous vehicle, autonomous vehicle will find it very difficult to traverse complex, ambiguous situations. It might work really well. Well, it will work really well in highway situations or suburban situations. But if we're looking for mass adoption in more urban situations or where there's more ambiguity between the, the road dynamics, so say we're not at a, at a zebra crossing or at a uh, pedestrian crossing, uh, what do you do then? And you know, in real life, in cities like London, in Detroit, there's always a little negotiation. There's a dance of understanding the intention of the other person, communicating it back. Um, and what we try to do is, 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 is replicate that, so, uh, that innate human understanding that we have of understanding what this person might be doing next. That's interesting to think about because, you know, on one hand, I was thinking about, boy, the car can't be wrong 20% of the time or, or even 1% of the time. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, it can't drive so conservative that it's a, uh, it's a non-starter to, you know, get across an intersection or, you know, be so uncomfortable for the person riding in it that, that they don't get where they need to go or it's, it's, you know, an unpleasant ride in some form or fashion. Exactly. I think, I think from, the, from our technological viewpoint, what we're developing is practical, trustworthy AI. And by practical, I mean, it's always a balance. Of course, it's always a balance. You can't be too conservative or too aggressive. But the way that we built our technology means that we're able to interpret why decisions are made so they can always be improved. So uh, interpretability, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's an important mouthful uh, because of uh, what it means in AI in functional safety systems. So um, if we have a black box, it's not always the most useful in, in, in functional safety applications. It might be fine for applications such as um, advertisements, online, say on social media and so on, it might get the mark wrong. And if it does get it wrong, you don't really care that much. But when it comes to these um, safety issues of vehicles or machines in a warehousing facility and so on, we really need to understand why decisions are made and understand um, confidence intervals. So one thing that we do is not only do we um, show the output of our AI, but we also show our confidence interval. We are not the end application developer. We provide the best understanding of what people are doing around the machine, around the vehicle, and so on. And we provide the best information by being able to show that this is what we think and this is how sure we are of each of the characteristics that we care about. Very interesting. So then ultimately the developer can determine what to do with that information. Exactly. And, and that's why... Confidence level. Yes, exactly. And, and that's why we've developed uh, what we are calling the behavior AI platform. So we have uh, a set of models 
which we combine in different ways for different applications that our customers can use in whatever way they want. Um, and that's why uh, that's the way that we've been building it for the past four years. And now we feel ready to expand this platform to be uh, beyond the mobility industry as well. Of course, we're still continuing on in that. That's a big, uh, it's a big area for us. But we are also exploring how else can we leverage this technology in our cities today. So what are some of the verticals beyond, beyond automotive and mobility? And I'll come so back the, to those ones. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so there's the verticals of construction sites. So there's lots of liabilities and accidents from, from uh, construction site safety. Um, and it's a similar value proposition to some of the others in the manufacturing and distribution centers, where, where essentially there are lots of people in a, in a safety maybe not critical, but uh, uh, in areas where safety is extremely important. Um, and what we enable the customers in those spaces to do is, uh, is to be able to get better insights into how their workplace is being run. So I noticed that two of your partners are, are beverage companies, PepsiCo and Anheuser-Busch. What, what do you do with them? So they are not only very recognizable drinks brands that I'm sure we have every day, but they have the biggest fleets in the US. Um, and, and what that means is they probably experience some of the biggest liability costs and, and safety costs when it comes to the transportation of their beverages or the goods required for, for making the beverages. So in these use cases, what we uh, enable them to do is to, to improve the safety of their own drivers. So, so in a, uh, one, uh, one thing that we are doing with these companies is working with Together for Safer Roads, which is an initiative in the US to make our roads safer. <laughs> it's, it's in the name. Um, and we're working very closely with the drivers because we're not trying to create a technology that is replacing driver insight or replacing driver skill. That's not really the point of it. It's really to augment the, the driver's vision. There are blind spots in vehicles and so on, and it's not always that the driver's fault. Um, so what our technology allows us to do is to have uh, these cameras that are facing the, the rear of the vehicles or front facing and so on. So they have a 360 view of the vehicle, but they only get alerted of it when there's something important that requires their attention. It's not that they have to look at screens all day or anything. Um, it's more about enabling the, the drivers to make better decisions in urban and suburban areas primarily. We're going to take a quick break from our conversation with Ranuk for a word from our sponsor. At Hariba Automotive, we marry a half century of unmatched scientific measurement and data management proficiencies with ever-expanding engineering expertise and ongoing innovations to provide solutions and applications that meet the challenges of an evolving automotive industry. And as the transition toward electrified mobility continues to gain speed, we're accelerating our efforts in all things electrification, ramping up our offering and creating opportunities for our customers along the way. With both regulatory and consumer requirements demanding cleaner, more reliable transportation, we're collaborating with our customers to meet the R&D challenges of future mobility head on. As a dedicated business segment within the Hariba Group, Hariba Automotive is the benefactor of the wide-ranging expertise of our broader, multidisciplinary team of scientists, engineers, and developers. By integrating insights and perspectives across a range of industries, we're able to create purpose-built solutions to meet the unique needs of our customers. 
Our solutions span the different stages of the vehicle development and evaluation process, from material characterization, component, system, and vehicle, for all varieties of e-powertrains, including those with batteries, fuel cells, and hybrid architectures. To learn more about how our solutions and applications are driving the future of mobility, visit us at Hariba.com. Hariba Automotive, electrification beyond measure. And now back to our conversation with Ranuk Bose from Humanizing Autonomy. Another interesting partnership you have is with Airbus. Tell us uh, about that one. Oh, yes. So that partnership was really interesting because it was our first foray into a non automotive um, technology. So in this context, we were working in their advanced manufacturing facilities uh, based in Hamburg in Germany, and they have these automated guided vehicles that are used to transport big, big parts across the, the manufacturing facility. And uh, they're really impressive, but the downside is they don't really understand what the, the workers around them are doing. So this is a mixed space where there are these automated guided vehicles and human workers working together in the same space. So what was happening a lot was that the, the, the guided vehicles would continuously stop unnecessarily because they could sense that there's something in the way, but they couldn't sense whether that person was going to be in their way for a while or whether they were actually going to pass the path of the robot. So to be conservative, they just stop or go around in circles. So what we showed with our deployment uh, with, with Airbus, and this was uh, a couple of years ago now, um, is that we reduced the false positive rate 10 times. Uh, this means that the vehicles had a much higher uptime of transporting parts and a much lower uh, return on investment as a result, as in uh, a lower time for the return to investment. Ranak, are you, as you gather data to train your your AI, are you noticing that pedestrians or other road users are behaving differently during this era of COVID uh, than they did beforehand? Yeah, so we were doing a project with Transport for Greater Manchester, where they were looking at how spaces in stations or outside stations on the road are being used. Um, and what we've seen from that type of data is that um, while in the beginning, in the height of the pandemic, there were very few people and they were um, being separated. There's more infrastructure being made. For example, roads have been become more pedestrianized in many parts of the UK. Um, so people were being separated. But now that, that things are going more and more back normal, at least in London, in the UK, it seems to be going back to the normal pattern of behavior that is very specific to each culture. So I think the, the insights that we've gained... Uh, are more that culturally there are distinct uh, patterns of behavior and there are temporal things like COVID will, will disrupt that temporarily, but it will go back to uh, the, kind of the, the cultural uh, behaviors that existed before, maybe in a slightly different way, but primarily uh, that is the biggest factor. So for example, you know, if, we're looking at, if we're looking at data in, in parts of Vietnam, that will still have lots of different types of um, uh, mobility types, such as scooters and, and cycles. And they are still available, uh, uh, they're, uh, they're still being used there uh, very heavily. And if you look at cities, like specific cities, even within Europe, um, in London, you're still getting the same jaywalkers who, who cross the path because that's 
the road culture of London. If you just go not too far away to Berlin, it's very different. Um, so, so what we've seen is those cultural differences that we can account for with our technology are, are still a much bigger part than any of these temporal differences that happen from big events. That's really interesting to think about because if I'm a, you know, if I'm a self-driving robo-taxi company with global ambitions, uh, yeah. I want to understand those cultural differences very quickly, but, but probably don't want to spend my time driving millions and millions of miles in each city. So I, I very much see where that would be, um, you know, highly useful information, highly valuable information. Yeah. The way that we've built our technology is that those last, uh, those behaviors are at the very top of our, our pyramid of models, if you will. So, so what that means is we're able to very rapidly fine tune those models with a very small amount of new data. It means that we don't have to um, start from scratch when we move to a new city. We don't have to work in an end-to-end way where, where we actually have to drive a lot of miles again to build up those behaviors. Um, so this has been really helpful, of course, from going from one city to another. We're deploying um, across cities around the world, but also um, has allowed us to, to deploy in new verticals. And that's been uh, really key. Um, that we, uh, we uh, that the methodology that we have used to be a global company for automotive is actually being really helpful for going outside of mobility as well. Uh, when you reference the, uh, you know, people standing on a train platform waiting, and, and you can kind of tell how far apart they are, uh, maybe wonder about privacy implications and how do yeah. you comply with GDPR and other uh, privacy uh, regulations around the world? Yeah, I mean. Pr- Privacy is, is, is probably uh, the, the highest thing in our technology stack in terms of how do we, how do we uh, conserve the, the privacy of individuals. It was never the intention or in this deployment to collect data and use that data in a way that's uh, um, attributed to any particular individual. The way our computer vision models work is that it, abstra- it extracts abstract data such as what are the, the positions of different uh, body parts or where are they looking and so on. But it doesn't tie those data points down to any particular individual. So that's been really important for us and why we've been able to pass all the GDPR criteria. We work with customers around the world and, and one of the most privacy concerned countries in Germany, uh, we've been able to pass their criteria for for deployment as well, which I think is a good kind of real-world indicator of how well, uh, how seriously we take privacy concerns. You mentioned that you you met your co-founders at Imperial College. Uh, let's take a step back for a second. How did how did you all come together and realize that you had uh, kind of stumbled across something that that was pretty unique and that you wanted to pursue as a startup? Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's something we think about a lot. Uh, so Maya, Leslie, and I, we have a, a, a very different backgrounds um, uh, prior to this, um, but working in similar spaces. So my background is in engineering. Um, Leslie's background is in industrial design engineering, and, and Maya is in architecture. And we uh, joined this master's course called Innovation Design Engineering, which is a uh, which is a master's course that's between Imperial College London and the Royal College of Art. And it's a really interesting course because it, it brings people from these different disciplines who have kind of a shared passion for technology and cities and where we live and so on. 
Um, we started a group project together uh, on this course where we were exploring um, what seems a bit daft now, but we called it herbal, uh, um, urban naturalness. So what is it to feel at ease in a city? And we're exploring the trends that were going on at the same time. So there, there was a lot of hype around self-driving cars at that time. This is around uh, Christmas 2016. And one thing that we felt was that the, the needs of pedestrians and cyclists weren't being shown on those snazzy uh, CGI demos. Uh, usually what you would see is the self-driving car telling a pedestrian that they can cross, but it's not the two-way communication that we know is the reality in a, in a city like in London. So we saw an opportunity there that if these vehicles can actually understand people, it's more likely that they're going to be um, enabled at scale in the cities that we live in. Um, so that's the opportunity that we saw. And we, and we spent a lot of time while studying, actually testing this assumption with different car makers and so on. Um, and and uh, in the summer after we graduated, so in July 2017, we incorporated the, the company and and here we are. Very interesting. That's so funny because that 2016 period that you uh, just identified was like the peak hype of, of self-driving cars. Yeah. Uh, you're totally right. Everything, everything that you saw was from a car-centric point of view. Yeah, it was, it was exactly that. It was a car-centric point of view. And, and while we appreciated all the technical um, feats that had to be done to get it to that stage, we've, uh, we very strongly felt that the technology um, can only be realized, this amazing technology that people have built, can only be realized if they take into account the context where they're being used. And, and what we think we provide is that human context. How did you get into engineering and, uh, you know, prior to humanizing autonomy, how did you decide that that was the kind of trajectory that you wanted to go to uh, borrow a word from earlier in our conversation? Yeah, yeah. So not to sound too trite or banal, but I've always enjoyed to make things and studying engineering is not necessarily the same as making things. Um, at least in the UK, it's, it's very academic sometimes um, and very mathematical. Um, so what I did was after I finished school, so high school, I worked uh, for a wind turbine company for a year to understand what it is to be an engineer. Now, this was very much more from a mechanical and design engineer perspective, but it gave me a really good insight on the impact that you can make as an engineer um, who, um, who can you know, be creative uh, and also deploy things in the real world. That really appealed to me. Uh, so I studied, I went on to study mechanical engineering at Imperial College London. What's really interesting is I think the name mechanical engineering is a bit of a legacy thing in the sense of, you know, we, we were actually programming since the first year. Um, and so my interest fell more so on the electronic, mechatronic and programming modules primarily. Um, so, so those were the spaces that I found most enjoyable and where I felt that I could uh, make the most creative things. Um, and following graduation from from um, Imperial College, where I also did my undergrad, as uh, um, I actually worked in a few different startups uh, based in London, uh, which was a great a great experience for me. I think that really helped me to understand um, the different parts of the puzzle that really make a startup. So joining joining startups at their 
early stages has been a real privilege because I got to, of course, be primarily an engineer developing algorithms, but also having a marketing hat on, having a user testing hat on and so on. Um, so after getting those experiences, I felt like I wanted to formalize uh, those design and engineering skills, uh, which is where, uh, which is when I went to do the masters where I met my co-founders, Maya and Leslie. That opportunity to see how different startups, uh, you know, evolve and pivot, and yeah, you know. and that was a, a a real a real privilege, um, I have to say. And I and I've been very lucky to be working in companies that provide a lot of support, and even in, um, especially in the early stage of humanizing autonomy, I'm very grateful from to my ex bosses and so on, who I went to for help often. Uh, if over a beer or not, uh, to, to just go through some of the issues, both strategic and operational. Is there any like key lesson learned from the startups before that, that benefited you in, in humanizing autonomy? Yes, for sure. I think, I think the big one is that you can't retrofit the culture or vibe of the company that you want to create. Um, something that we did, which was not, very common and probably isn't super common now is when we close our seed round, when we were about 10 people big, we actually hired Wies, who's our head of people. Um, some, some people would have said that's a bit early, but we really knew the type of company we wanted to be. And we worked very hard to get the right people in the company. Um, and we wanted to make sure that as we grow and we're growing now, um, we can maintain that, that vibe. The, the culture of the company will always change. That's normal. People, People will change, people will grow. That's fine. But as long as the intentions and the values remain constant, uh, that's really important. And I guess that's the main main learning that you can't retrofit that later. Ronak, so you guys have, uh, you know, you're deployed on cameras and construction sites, on uh, trucks and buses. Uh, can you just get, like, this is such a broad application of your technology uh can you underscore for us like why is this needed so uh you know why is now the time that this is needed and available yeah so now is the time because we're interacting with machines all the time in our daily lives you know whether we're walking cycling driving working in a factory working in an office going to the shops just listening to music at home automation is all around us but it doesn't necessarily understand us that lack of human context really leads to poor decisions by the machine and uninformed operational strategies by the companies that are responsible for those machines. And ultimately, it's a poor experience for us as people. That's really interesting to think about that, that here we are pouring all this energy uh, as, you know, across the globe into automation, but fundamentally, uh, it does not understand how to interact with humans all that well. It's, it's very much yeah. a one-way street right now. No, exactly. I think, I, think, I think the way I see our company is that we're an enabler for good technology. Um, so the kind of what I do believe is fundamentally people are building things for good, um, but they don't always have the right lens on. So they might be very biased towards what they think is is uh, the right way to do things. So uh, what we help is to draw that bridge between, okay, here's a really cool bit of core technology that another company has made, but to make it real, to make it useful and positive, um, you need another bit of technology to relate it back to the people. 
And we believe that we provide that for many other safety systems and so on. Can you give me an idea if, uh, if it's public uh, at this point, uh, are there automakers or, or you know, automotive suppliers that you're working with um, right now? Yes, so we are working with some of the, the bigger OEMs. Um, I don't think I'm allowed to say them, um, but uh, we're working with OEMs and tier ones in the automotive space. We're also working with integrators across the other spaces in construction and manufacturing as well. One big uh, partnership that's very important is to have the partnership with chip makers. So one that is public is with Umbrella. Um, through Umbrella, who actually work in many different industries, including automotive and more and more in automotive, uh, we're also leveraging that partnership to be able to provide our technology in, in, in new verticals, such as manufacturing and construction and so on. Is this an interesting time to be trying to get into uh, chips with the, the shortage everywhere? Does that impact what you're doing or how quickly you can uh, deploy uh, right now or no? Um, yes and no. In a sense, uh, uh, when we started, we were very much an edge-based uh, technology company. So the chips have a very big impact, maybe not on, uh, on, on specking what, uh, what exactly our, our technology is, but in terms of the, the deployment time. So what we're seeing is lots of our customers uh, um, uh, will take longer to deploy future products because of the, the chip shortage. However, I have to emphasize that uh, since last year, we've been working more and more on the cloud. And, and, and the reason for that is, one, it's a, it's a faster deployment time. Two, it's a, it's a lower investment for our customers. You know, they can try out how our technology works on the cloud. And three, it provides actually a different value prop. Uh, so it's not just about being reactive to things in real time, which is the edge application. But if you have cameras installed somewhere on a vehicle in a factory and you have this video information, you could leverage our technology on the cloud to generate insights and to improve your own planning and to improve your insurance processes and so on. As you grow and evolve, what does what does 2022 look like now? We're, we're practically there. Um, what are yeah. the key benchmarks that you want to see the company hit here in the next year? Yeah, I mean, 2022 is looking super exciting. Uh, not only are we deploying... Um, at scale, a real-world product at the end of this year and the beginning of next year. But also, we're exploring those new verticals, and we aim to have have versions of those new verticals released in the next year. Radak, I noticed on your uh, personal bio that you are a, quote, connoisseur of fried chicken. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. <laughs> is that, I assume that's something better than Kentucky fried chicken, but uh, why is that prominent on your bi- biography? Yeah, yeah. One, uh, one quick note, Kentucky Fried Chicken does have its place. I'm not saying it's the best fried chicken, but sometimes it will, it will hit the spot. Um, it's, it's slightly embarrassing, but it's true. I, I, I really do love fried chicken. It is probably my, my biggest weakness. Um, in spite of being an aspiring vegetarian, I only say aspiring because the only times I break it is for from time to time having some fried chicken, and I'll admit to that. Um, I wrote that uh, while I was still a student, and I should probably remove it. But to be honest, it is it is uh, it is true to who I am. I'm glad it's ongoing. Um, hey, great having you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Pete. Wow, Pete, thank you so much for that great conversation with humanizing with an S autonomy. Did you have any takeaways that you wanted to share with us? 
You know, I think one of them would just be that that part that we kind of intuitively understand. I think that culturally people behave in the traffic environment differently. And uh, it's really interesting to think about how uh, humanizing autonomy's software could, you know, make it easier for AV companies to scale across different cities and essentially learn them faster. So that, that would be one main takeaway, Leslie. Okay, so what's on the agenda for next week? Next week, we will be talking to uh, Joby Aviation, kind of continuing our, our occasional look at air mobility. Uh, yeah, and notice everybody, we said air mobility. We, we have a little swear jar. So when we say flying cars, we just put a little quarter in there. So <laughs> this is urban air mobility. And uh, that I can't wait to, for that conversation, Pete. It's always um, interesting to hear what's going on with that. It is. It is. And maybe we can... Uh you know, segue from, from ending this uh, with a preview of next week. And uh, next week we can explain a little bit what the, the difference between flying cars and other air mobility vehicles are. So, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining us today. Big thanks as always to our producer, Eric Jones, and we will be back next week with uh, Joby Aviation.